Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I will be talking with Michael Bernard and Jan Kubik about their recent book, 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Memoration, published by Oxford University Press. Hello, Michael, Jan? Yes? How are you folks doing? Very good. Okay, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on today. And before we get started ta- talking about your book, 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Com- uh, Commemoration, which is published by Oxford, tell me a bit about how you got interested in East European history or politics. I- I'll talk with you, Mike- uh, Michael, since you are not a native of the region, as far as I know. Oh, that's right. Um I was actually early on very interested in Russia and more economics than politics and and history. But uh, when I went to graduate school, it was the Brezhnev era, and I complete got completely bored with Russia. And much more interesting things were happening both in Hungary and Poland. So I thus became much more interested in Eastern Europe, and I gradually drifted away from economics and more in the direction of the study of politics. Okay, and uh, Jan, I know you're from the region. Did you want to add anything? Well, maybe. um, The the thing is that when I ended up in Colombia, where I met Michael, although he was in political science, I was in anthropology, for a moment I thought that I would be an Africanist. And I started moving in this direction, but then I got scared that there was... You know, learning all those new languages was not going to be a picnic. So I chickened out in a way and uh, went back to my um, uh, sort of natural interest in Eastern Europe. And that's how it started. Interesting. I I hadn't realized you'd uh, been at Columbia as well. Uh, So moving from there, how did this particular project come about? Well... Uh, we were both invited to uh, to a panel by Krzysztof Yashevich at what was then AAAS and has since become Aussies, and it was on the 20th anniversary. Um, and there were a bunch of us there, including Jan and I, and uh, do you remember who else was there, Jan, speaking on that? Uh, no. <laughs> Um, Andrzej Timowski, maybe? I don't remember. Yeah, and I think Piotr Vlatsky from Toronto. Yeah. So it started off fairly Poland-centered originally? Yes, it was about the painfulness of the 20th anniversary commemoration in Poland. And uh, what was painful, just to, to refresh people's minds, about that, particularly in Poland? There was a tremendous uh, conflict. Um, it was absolutely puzzling to us for a while that in the country that had the biggest anti-communist revolution and solidarity movement, uh, and both those elements, you know, Poland as the leader of the struggle against communism, this massive movement, uh, were extremely uh, attractive as a potential material for promoting the country, right? Uh, showing the world with um, a united face and the face of, of, a, of a hero in a way. Mm-hmm. So a fantastic material for PR, for propaganda, for promotion. And it was completely wasted in a way because they were in Poland inside of the country. Moreover, inside of the solidarity movement or former members, prominent members of the solidarity movement, were fighting over that legacy and that memory uh, in a pretty vicious uh, and intense way. So 
we thought this is really interesting and let's start investigating. And both both of us have a kind of comparativist temperament. So in order to understand something, we assume where we need to look at other cases and see how it works elsewhere to get a better sense of what's going on in Poland and in the whole region. And that's how it started, in my memory at least. Yes. Um, and then we used, we were able to garner some resources and hold a, uh, a workshop at Florida where we, uh, where we recruited a bunch of other people who were experts in particular countries to come in and, uh, and use a, a, a joint theoretical framework that Jan and I developed um, prior to that first workshop. And we got people to commit to trying to use that framework and also criticizing it so we could refine it. So we recruited a bunch of uh, well-known experts. So for Hungary, we recruited Anna Seleni. For Romania, Grigo Pop Alakesh. Um, we tried to get, we got um, Kevin Deegan Kraus to do Slovakia, and then he decided that he wanted to co-write with Carol Leff and Sharon Vol- Volchik, and we said, well, what the heck's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing. And uh, Dane Glidis did the Baltic countries along with Laura Ardava, um, a, a graduate student who she, at that time who she had met uh, during her fieldwork there. Oksana Chevelle did Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Connor O'Dwyer did the Czech Republic. David Art did Germany. Benelin um, Ganev did Bulgaria. And Aida Hozic did uh, the former Yugoslav states. Yeah, it's, it's quite a star-studded cast, really, when you look at it. And uh, quite comprehensive in taking in Eastern Europe. I guess the only place you know outside of Russia that I don't think I see is uh, Belarus. But that's a particular case in itself, anyway, isn't it? Well, go ahead, Jan. Well, the the idea was at the moment we started working on the theoretical framework, uh, we realized that the dynamic of any kind of politics, including the politics of memory, is very different in a democratic setting, even if this democratic setting is not perfect, by comparison with um, authoritarian um, cases. And then that was one of the first considerations to limit the, the case selection. But then we were playing with the idea of having some kind of more different case and, and we ended up with having um, uh, Ukraine as, as that kind of case that is somewhat outside of the, the, the other uh, members of the sample, sort of less democratic, less consolidated democracy, certainly, with more, uh, all kinds of troubles. But uh, it proved to be a good choice because it gave us the, the uh, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, almost an experimental contrast. And for readers, uh, they should be aware that the the essay and the book does not include the events of 2013, 2014. No. So, uh, which is fine for us, because it's all focused on the, what, it, what, it, what it meant to celebrate 20 years on. Well, you know, you've mentioned your analytical categories and the, your method here. Why don't you elaborate a bit more about the specifics of that uh, that aspect of the project? Oh, well, I guess maybe I can talk about the actors, and then you can talk about the kinds of regimes that result, John. How's that? Okay. So in thinking about the Polish case and other cases that we knew a lot about, we tried to think about whether there were archetypes of different kind of actors who took different positions on memory issues, and then we came up with a with a kind of fourfold typology, um, which includes uh, most notably the idea of the memnotic warrior, the actor who believes that they have uh, a definitive uh, view of history, and uh, who struggle tirelessly to try and uh, convince or coerce everybody else in the polity that that's the way the past should be interpreted. Then we had uh, memnonic pluralists who, while having their own uh, interpretation of the past, were willing to admit that there might be other ways of, uh, of thinking about the past and trying to uh, enter into dialogue about the best way to understand the past. 
Then we had memnonic abnegators, which were um, actors who did not care to dwell on the past at a particular moment. This would be perhaps out of um, out of trying to avoid conflict, or perhaps they find it to their advantage not to raise certain issues about the past at certain times because it would not work to their advantage. And we also talked about a fourth type, the memnonic perspectives uh, who are future-oriented and sort of have solved the, the riddle of history, a kind of formation that is uh, well-known to students of the region uh, through, uh, through the way that the communists thought about history. But we really found that um, in our exploration of the post-communist period, an almost complete absence of uh, perspectives. See. Okay. And the regimes? And, yes. So um, once we had those types of actors, which really helped us to organize and order quite a bit of information and, and see, uh, you know, the patterns of both thinking and behavior a bit more clearly, we started looking at combinations. In, and um, we came up with the idea that there are three basic types of memory regimes, fractured, pillarized, and unified. And technically, the definitions emerge very, very nicely that a fractured regime was a regime in which there was at least one warrior. Uh, pillarized was a regime in which there was no warrior, uh, but at least one pluralist. Uh, and th in that case, the pluralist was setting the tone. So it was very much based on Leibhardt's ideas um, that there are systems in which uh, people who may have very different views politically or representing different constituencies may coexist once they uh, find a way to tolerate each other and, and develop some kind of a mutually agreeable platform of working together despite of differences. So that was the guiding idea, well known in political science. But in this case, we used it to think about the memory regimes. Um, we were kind of sensing that this is difficult and, and may be rare, but nonetheless, it was important theoretically. And then finally, particularly coming from the field of the studies of communism, state socialism, we, we were looking at something that we called a unified memory regime that was something that was, um, of course, somehow developed and um, maintained under the, the, the total, particularly the totalitarian phase of communism. Uh, and we were suspecting that this kind of regime can come about in basically two ways. One, by the imposition from the top, and say something similar to preventive censorship of communism. Of course, we didn't expect this case among the democratic set of countries, but we thought that maybe there may be, at least theoretically, quite feasible a situation where someone would achieve, that, well, at least the near-perfect hegemony and, and one, one view would be dominant. Well, another possibility was that there will be no warriors, no pluralists, and, and that would be sort of a situation where, you know, nobody even sort of thinks about competing over a memory of some fragment of the past. Um, once this was set up, the, another task was to specify further the, the empirical field we were going to be looking at. And we were, uh, of course, aware of this enormous amount of writing about memory and the politics of memory, particularly the whole discussion about, you know, the individual memory versus collective uh, memory of various subcultures and subgroups, memory of families, memory of towns, memory of cities, memory of classes, you know, you name it, right? And everything, of course, is being studied. There was all way too much. So we, we made some, some kind of drastic decisions. We said we're going to be looking at only a set of memory regimes that are national, uh, that are prominent in the national uh, space. So we called it national memory field. The, the concept of memory field emerged also, which is a set of memory regimes that exist in a given national field in a given moment. It can change, it, it does change over time. Um, once we had this defined, then we said... 
that you know we observe at least hypothetically a given actor may engage in a memory regime either as a warrior or as an abnegator or as a pluralist and then it occurred to us that in the, another memory regime you can play a different role right so you can be a warrior in one memory regime an abnegator in another and i think I, i'm still very proud of this this is this is a very very i think solid idea uh, which which uh, many people do not pay attention to they they think that those or would assume that those types are sort of fixed you know once you behave in a certain way in one memory regime or one memory contest you will be behaving like that in other situations and we discovered empirically that's not necessarily the case so there was also nice and then you know another final delineation was that memory regimes uh, of interest to us are those that are constructed by governments and or political parties and we call them official so within the national space we were interested only in looking at official memory regimes that were created to commemorate the fall of communism 20 years earlier so it looks you know it is pretty i we think nicely precisely defined set uh, which then uh, we were assuming would allow us to uh, do a, a, a pretty a, a much more uh, rigorous uh, comparison than it is usually done and well we i think we still believe that this worked Oh, well, it's certainly compelling reading for me. Uh, what now? Why don't we talk about some of the examples, and perhaps uh, you could give an example before we go into individual countries. Perhaps you could name some that present that example of someone who's a memory warrior in one case, but becomes an abnegator in another. So people have a clear idea of what you're getting at there. Oh, let's see. The Slovak case is very good for that. So um one good example was that um Smer and Fitzo was very much an abnegator with regard to the uh to the events of 1989. Mm-hmm. Right they have a very unambiguous role uh, in that in that you know many of its part of its base of support came from the former communists and so they had a very sort of um indescript attitude towards the events of 1989 um while they were for instance much more um they would talk much more enthusiastically let's say about the Slovak uprising of 1944 another good example there would be the remnants of of Mečar's party in um in Slovakia as well they too were not particularly uh excited about the commemoration of 1989 but were much more excited about commemorating the velvet divorce from the Czech Republic as being much more of an important kind of foundational sort of event and so different parties in Slovakia often talked about different events as as what was most important to them and were perhaps most aggressively uh pressing that at different times in the if you like in the in the calendar of memory. And if I recall correctly part of the problem here is that because the events of 1989 were a shared experience it was disruptive for thinking about the the divorce that came afterward. Is that correct? Well it it is interesting because the dynamic in the Czech Republic was very different right and then then you know michael always liked the slovak case and i always liked the this czech case perhaps because my grandfather was czech um and i have this tremendous weakness for prague um <laughs> my mother was born in prague by the way so um in the czech case we have this one uh, the only one actually pillarized case where uh, uh, we amassed uh, uh, or Dwyer did uh, a fair amount of evidence that people were saying something like 
Yeah, I remember the past in a certain way, but if you want to remember it differently, oh, all right, it's not a big deal. I mean, it, it, it almost was like that. Um, so that this degree of, of tolerance and pluralism for uh, other um, other ways of remembering the uh, the fall of communism was most pronounced. That, that we decided quite clearly uh, of all of our cases. So the only regime that we called a memory regime that we called pillarized was actually in the Czech Republic. Um, um, the government was kind of not particularly interested in the celebrations. It was another thing. And what uh, the leaders of um, commemorating were the student organizations, which was also a, a unique um, uh, situation among our cases. So it was civil society um, and civil society actors that were engaged in the building this memory regime, but building it based on the degree of the level of tolerance and pluralism that we didn't see in other cases. And you, 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 you draw the comparison between Slovakia. Uh, but you know, isn't that an example, though, of how you know, going back to 1918, Czech, Czech, Czechs were always comfortable claiming the role for the whole nation as or the whole entity of Czechoslovakia, whereas Slovaks or Slovaks, excuse me, were a bit more uh, focused on the Slovak cause. Is that part of the issue? It didn't. It didn't come up that much in this. Uh, I, I think that what we what 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 those two case studies show was this. The significance of the um, or the dominance, not exclusive sort of causal power, but the dominance of the, um, the state of the political game at the time of commemoration. You know, we we one of the big assumptions that we are making, and I think it is confirmed, and many people who study the politics of memory would agree with us that the politics of memory is about the politics of t today, mm -hmm. about the past that doesn't exist in obvious way, but is only uh, sort of recorded in various cultural vehicles. And people fight over that representation or set of representations of the past. And because the political dynamic at that moment in Slovakia was very different than in the Czech Republic, so the commemorations by and large went well, or the memory regimes that emerged were different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the, the things we tried to argue strongly in the book is that that the politics of the past is instrumentalized. That it really, that interpretations of the past, particularly taken by the kinds of actors we were interested in, those in control of governments and states and those contesting the power of governments and states, really has to do with the state of politics at a given time and that those interpretations are conditioned on gaining political advantage in the present. And we've described that, as I've said, as the instrumentalization of the past. Mm -hmm. Now, as we move into this, you know, we've talked about this one pillar, uh, pillarized example, you say, in the Czech Republic. I know that this project began clearly with uh, with the issue of mnemonic warriors, but why don't we move first to the uh, the unitary or example or uh, unified example, mm -hmm. and uh, for some examples of that, and because I think we see this in in some rather different places and some unexpected, given what you said about democracy and such. I think the 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 most. Shocking. One of the more shocking findings uh, comes out of the, the brilliant case done by Aida Hozic about the former Yugoslavia. And for the former Yugoslavia, 1989 is not a is the beginning of the time of troubles. Uh, the most significant event of 1989, of course, was the Milosevic speech at the the field of blackbirds. Mm -hmm. And so, in six, uh, no, make that five of the. Uh, of the Yugoslav Republic, Slovenia is an outlier. There was a really, uh, shall we say, um, 
it was really an uncontested event, an event which was more about forgetting than remembering. And um, everybody basically ab- was an was an abnegator. That nobody felt that it was to their advantage to press a divided kind of notion of memory on the 20th anniversary of 1989. It was simply because of ethnic cleansing, because of war, because of the deep divisions within those societies and across those societies, there was very little sort of um, new myth-making that played up the divisions of the past. Um, And this led to um, any number of... um, really interesting results. For instance, the, the, the strongest actors in pushing forward a commemoration of 1989 tended to be um, West European and West German, and German foundations, which um, wanted to commemorate 1989 as an important European event, but for many of the former Yugoslavs, this was too painful a memory to reopen 20 years later. So everybody abnegated, and they were unified in their determination not to either celebrate or denigrate 1989, but really to try and forget about it. Hmm. And that was that was really remarkable. My favorite example there was a, uh, was a case where, I believe it was in Serbia, where a foundation paid for a replica of the Berlin Wall to be created uh, in downtown Belgrade, and even before there could be an event, there was a strong windstorm, and that blew the, the, the mock-up of the wall down and away, <laughs> uh, which I thought was incredibly emblematic of, of what things were like in those, uh, in those five countries, in Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro, and Macedonia. Um, and so this was one type of non-fractured or unified memory regime, and we came up with the name for it, the deliberate abnegation. Mm-hmm. And then we had the second pattern, which is very different, and which we call depolitization. And this is a, 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 an interesting set of countries because this is Bulgaria, Germany, and the Czech Republic, which is pillarized, right, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly non-fractured. Uh, and uh, in each of those countries, uh, one way or another, this anniversary was simply not, has not become or did not become uh, uh, a platform for uh, any kind of mnemonic conflict, um, but for very different reasons, very different reasons. So I already described the Czech Republic. In Bulgaria, uh, as Vendelin very um, uh, precisely described, it was um, uh, the whole kind of cultural syndrome revolving around some strong degree of nostalgia after state socialism, which there's quite a bit of evidence from surveys and other interviews, other sources, is um, this, this nostalgia, the level of this nostalgia is stronger in Bulgaria than in any other place. So it was this kind of confusion. I mean, if you think relatively uh, well about the communist past, then you're not going to be particularly enthusiastic about celebrating or commemorating the downfall of state socialism. And that was exactly what happened. It was kind of lukewarm and not not particular. There was no particular energy or interest, but nothing even remotely approaching, you know, the intensity that we saw, say, um, in Poland or in Hungary, or even Romania, which is another thing. Uh, the German case was fascinating as well because, of course, November and the memory calendar of Germany is a minefield. It is. It not only has uh, the fall of the wall, but the fall of the Kaiserreich and Reichskristallnacht right. on the same month. Furthermore, we know how much um, the Germans have devoted to developing a, a cultural con- a culture of, of uh, contrition following the historic strike in the 1980s, and there was great reticence to um, to shall we say uh, trespass on on that kind of. Um, that unified culture of contrition that existed in Germany. And there were some actors who were, who could have potentially been warriors, but they decided that it was simply not worth their while to, uh, to try and play that card. You could imagine arch nationalists seeing 1989 as a 
real important event because of the unification of Germany. At the same time, there are um, are groups in the former East Germany and the West German left who uh, who 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 are somewhat um, how shall I say it. Um, are somewhat nostalgic for what was lost when the GDR perished. Yet at the same time, they didn't think that attacking the idea of unification because of the the loss of, <coughs> sorry, the social state in East Germany was, uh, was a, a winning issue for them. And so the culture of contrition really constrained what actors could do, and and very very few people tried to uh, treat 1989 there as other than a kind of celebration. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the uh, contrition. I'm just wondering, was there, a, you know, given the coincidence of the Berlin Wall coming down and Kristallnacht? Uh, was that did that particular issue coincidence play a role in that, or was it a broader in, uh, concern about contri- this culture of contrition you were talking about? Well, I think David Art argues that the culture of contrition was almost, in some sense, hegemonic, and that trying to move German uh, memory off of that was dangerous for any actor who would consider it. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's another thing that, you know, the culture of contrition has tremendous uh, institutional sort of infrastructure uh, of institu- of all kinds of institutions, uh, the state and, and then the land level and then civil society. And um, nobody has a machinery to deal with the past as developed as the Germans for obvious reasons. So in this case, just another celebration, another possibility to use this machine uh, in a very powerful sort of unified way and this is exactly what happened. So it was very tightly, precisely run as a major state event um, and any attempt as, as, as Michael precisely described to, to, to challenge it would have been extremely costly. So all those actors who might have potentially be thinking about challenging it, abnegated, and you had a very unified set of celebrations. Again, it needs to be emphasized on that particular, or it is all happening in this particular memory regime. Mm-hmm. Of course, on other issues, which in our language would mean in other memory regimes, the dynamic may be very different. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, that brings us to the mnemonic warriors and the fractured uh, fractured memory regimes and we're going to I think we'll end up with Hungary and Poland because those are both in the news right now anyway uh, and the remaining case is probably not as well known and it's, it's worth uh, knowing and it has its own peculiarities uh, so uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that first well, the most important thing is that the commemoration came in the middle of a highly uh, contested presidential election, um, where, um, where on the one hand, um, there was there, there were there were there were two camps. Um, I need to. Uh, I need to figure out my who who were the actors here. So give me a second. Sure. On who the two presidential candidates were, I'm sure Marshall Poe can do a good job of mm-hmm. editing this stuff out. On the one hand, there was um, there were two parties that were split out of uh, the National Salvation Front. Um, Just give me a second. Well, one was um, Basisco and one was Joanna. Joanna were the two uh, were the two candidates, and of course, Basescu was well known for kind of turning his back on the communist past and uh, creating a, a truth commission in Romania, which played a, a, a big role in in politicizing this. Um, at the same time, the National Liberals and the National Peasant Party teamed up with uh, with 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 Joanna to um, to attack Basescu for doing this, and uh, 
and uh, kind of nasty politics of, of recrimination over who had the right to speak about 1989 uh, seeped its way into the presidential election. Um, this then was all completely diffused by, by a group of Timisoara veterans who said that neither camp had a right to, uh, to speak in the name of the people who made the revolution. And so there was this very nasty kind of memnonic war going on, and then uh, cold water was thrown on it by the actual participants in the, um, in the demonstrations in Timisoara. Yes, the actual contest, among other places, actually, again, happened in Timisoara, where there were demonstrations and counter-demonstrations, exactly the way sort of our model kind of sets it up or, or predicts in a way. So that was, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of sort of national specificity, but at the same time, the lines of conflict were very much uh, uh, sort of specified as, as or happened as, as in, in our model. Oh. And of course, the very history of what happened in Romania made this harder because I think until this day, there are rather different interpretations of what 1989 meant, whether it was really an indigenous social revolution or whether it was a set of manipulations by contesting factions of the elite. And I don't think from a kind of historical graphical point of view, there's any consensus on this, which makes the whole thing even harder to kind of get a handle on. Right, and, and the, so, but the, 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 you know, what, what we didn't talk about, maybe we will talk about it, is that you know we we were not sort of in any sense um, selecting on dependent variable. Right, we were not mm-hmm. organizing our uh, or creating those sets of of uh, specific types of mnemonic regimes on the basis of observing the regimes, but rather we we arrived at as a very careful analysis of of the, uh, the set of uh, independent variables. We may perhaps, Chip will have a chance to talk about it more, more about it. But what, what generated that set to which um, uh, Romania belonged uh, generated also uh, other members of that set are Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and Slovakia. So it's, it's a rather, uh, again, interesting and, and somewhat incongruous set but what, what is what, when you think about it for a moment, for example, from the point of view of our uh, in the set of our independent variables, this is the set where you didn't have a strong tradition of reforms under communism. The, the communist parties uh, were a rather hard line compared, say, with Romania, uh, with uh, Poland or Hungary to the very end. And what generated basically this said was the existence of at least one strong uh, cleavage, uh, polarizing cleavage, either uh, uh, ethnic and, or ideological, and, uh, or, or sometimes, you know, some cases more, more broadly sociocultural. But if you think about the three Baltic states, right, and particularly, let's say, take Latvia, and you know anything about the significance of Russian minority, which in some places, including Riga, is a minor- majority or not, right? So a powerful uh, presence of, of an ethnic, ethnic division, uh, the memory of everything related to communism and the memory of uh, World War II, but also the memory of the fall of communism, is dramatically different, say, among ethnic Latvians and ethnic Russians in Latvia. Um, so that by itself, almost as a powerful variable, we generated the uh, fractured memory. Well, and to boot, of course, 1939 and 1989 are 50 years apart. And in the Baltics, thus, that year, any, any anniversary that begin, that ends in the year nine, of course, immediately brings together the destruction of Baltic independence in the interwar period, and then the regaining of that independence. And that really strongly pits Russian minorities on one hand and the titular nationalities on the other at odds with each other because they have rather different interpretations of of what the incorporation into the USSR meant and what the regaining of independence means. Right. Right. I guess I want to say one thing about Romania that struck me is you mentioned in the, your introduction 
that sometimes, you know, being a demonic warrior can backfire. And that seems the, the Romanian case is uh, an example where that seems to have been, um, been the best example. Well, you know, until this election in Poland, we thought that in Poland was also backfiring because um, Kaczynski, uh, a, a very classical, quintessential uh, mnemonic warrior, was losing whatever, seven, eight, like nine elections before this one, and he persisted and finally he won. Uh, which only tells you, uh, again, do not predict anything in politics. But, um, you know, the, the last set of cases, which, is, which was the one from which we started and which is our favorite perhaps still, is, is in a way completely paradoxical because this is the set of cases where you have this thing we call negotiated extrication from state socialism, and this is Poland, Hungary, and Slovenia. So, you know, you, you might think that, okay, so this is the, the kind of a smoothest uh, way of getting out of communism and there were round tables and there were negotiations and therefore they figured out how to coexist. So you would think they will continue uh, this, this culture of coexistence, tolerance, pluralism, pilarization and all of this. And this would not even happen at all. Right, so we 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 identified that the mechanism, uh, which both of us were writing about earlier and thinking about, and, and the mechanism is rather simple. When uh, it comes to negotiating the negotiated uh, regime transition, uh, you have those who are negotiating uh, on both sides, actually, and those who are excluded for all kinds of reasons from negotiation, right? And this sets the dynamic that after the negotiation is completed, those who are excluded are beginning to protest, and they are beginning to present the deal, say, at the roundtable as something that is corrupt, uh, that is rotten, that those who are sitting, the, the part of solidarity, say, in Poland, that sat down to negotiate with the communists were traitors, uh, that the revolution is unfinished, corrupted, stolen, you know, all those things are being said, and it, set, it creates an enormous dynamic of division within the victorious camp. And that happened... Uh, in Poland, it happened in Hungary, and it happened in Slovenia. And um, this is uh, uh, so you arrived at fractured memory regime through two very different paths, right? One is in the set of countries which had the most relaxed reform oriented communist parties and the transition through pacting. And the other case is where you have very hardline set of communist parties. And uh, in the most uh, classical sort of set of cases, you had a very powerful ethnic uh, polarization that generated this dynamic of, of mnemonic war. Um, so that that's, I think, was one of the most interesting things. And before doing all this work, we obviously didn't have a... Uh, uh, such a clear sense of that difference. If we can go back to Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic for a second, though, because it also had a negotiated end, uh, a very rapid one. And well, yet, more of a collapse, though. More of a collapse. And the, the yeah. communists as a political actor were very much sidelined. What's interesting in the Czech Republic is that there was a social democratic alternative that emerged, and the post-communists really didn't reform themselves into a social democratic party, as it did in the other cases. So that's really another uh, remarkable kind of irony there in those countries in which the, the, the communist successor parties most strongly distanced themselves from the past. That's where the division occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some sense, that that was that conversion is presented by the warriors as something that's insincere, as something that uh, that that is evidence that the the revolution is complete because the the um, the post communists were able to somehow uh, burnish their images and uh, return to the fold in politics and be highly um, 
effective political parties in the post-communist age. So even though that's really something which in all those cases could be seen as something that worked to advance reform and the consolidation of democracy was seen as the warriors as prima facie evidence that the... Um, that the revolution was incomplete because those actors were still there on the scene and were still consequent. And that's not true in, in the Czech case because the communists remained hardline. A lot of their support was peeled away by this historical social democratic party, um, and that made a huge difference. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, this, this case also takes us to um, something that we should maybe talk a little bit about, which is our method, um, which um, was something that called for a lot of uh, many hard decisions. You know, anybody who is trying to code things, not use the ready-made data sets, but actually go through empirical material, particularly as complex as this, and then code them into a binary scheme of zero-one, which we had to do in order to do... Um, um, our analysis, uh, one of the, the decisions which was not that easy was to actually, uh, as you mentioned, on the Czech and Slovak cases, but uh, as, as Michael was explaining, we decided to code it as a non-negotiated transition, and we coded as negotiated transitions only uh, Poland, Hungary, and Slovenia. And uh, obviously, this can be debated. I mean, that's the one thing that we always repeat, you know, people can take this. I think Jan disappeared. Yes, I fear that has happened. Let me, he's still listed on, yeah, now he's disappeared. Let me, let me... I think he's back. Jan? trying to reconnect. Jan? Jan? Yeah, I think I lost you at some point. Yes, you yes, did. Yes. I so, should I do, why don't you go back to that whole judgment and coding issue from the top, I think. All the way from the beginning? Yes, you really did disappear there. Okay. It was on the spur of the moment. I guess I started talking about it. Okay. You're um, talking about coding things as negotiated versus non-negotiated. Yes. Um, so the, the Czech case... Um, is a good illustration of uh, a serious and interesting problem we faced, which was the problem of coding. Um, we had to um, convert um, a lot of uh, very textured and detailed um, uh, qualitative information into uh, very simple quantitative um, values of variables, and they had to be binarized for our method to work. So we had to decide, for example, whether uh, Czech or Slovak transformations, transitions were negotiated or not. And our decision were, were, was that they were not, and the only three cases of negotiated transition were Hungary, Poland, and Slovenia. Um, and the point is that it can be recoded. Can Someone can come up with the reasons to change this decision. And, uh, of course, we would very much welcome such uh, exercises, but you know, the decision was reached after a very broad and deep and sustained over time uh, consultation with the whole team. So this was one of those um, examples of work where a lot of uh, experts were talking to each other and knowing the cases very well. Um, together, uh, we were arriving and those staff coding decisions, which, um, yeah, was very rewarding. It was very interesting. But here it is. Czech and Slovak cases were coded, um, i.e. Czechoslovakia at that time, as non-negotiated, as the collapse mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting insight also into the, the different perspective 
that a social science, a more rigorous kind of social science perspective, like political science, those would the, just the, the conceptualization is something I don't think the historians I work with would generally even think of doing. So it's that's kind of interesting insight into what what political scientists can bring to this question of memory. Well, this, I, isn't, this isn't mainstream political science, though. This is a kind of political science that thinks of causation as being complex and contingent and looks at kind of multiple factors and how they combine to bring about results. So this is, um, this okay. is, not, this is not necessarily mainstream political science, I would say. Um, and it's much more historically informed um, than other forms of political science. But at the same time, political science think and about and use history in ways that's different from the way uh, the profession of historians would, where, uh, where the devil is really in the details. As generalizers, political scientists sometimes have to move away from the detail in all its nuance and to some extent in order to think about chains of causation. Mm-hmm. Well, I, say, I, I found it enlightening in that way from a historian's perspective. Uh, I thought that was it's just something I wouldn't have ever thought of doing, and it works whether it's exactly uh, you know uh, political science, mainstream political science, or not. I'll take your word for it there, but it was I think it was a valuable way to look at this. Uh, I, I, I you know I would add that you know in in the case of this this kind of uh, question where you are doing something that used to be or perhaps still is um, uh, sort of a classical interest of comparative politics, which is comparing countries, which by definition is a, um, uh, at least part of the analysis is macro. Uh, this approach, which is also sort of middle N, right, 17 cases, the approach we, we chose, um, uh, qualitative comparative analysis, uh, based on a very detailed um, examination of cases, uh, is the only way to go, to my mind, still. And therefore, you know, I, I would say that for this particular question, it is actually the mainstream, mainstream, <laughs> because it's hard to imagine doing something else, uh, because you have to find this kind of, you know, uh, via media, some, some, some path between too much detail and too, too much often mindless generalization, right? So I, I think this method allowed us and do that. And um, um, I, I think the result was was eventually or is hopefully convincing both to those who want to see patterns and those who are not ready to sacrifice too much uh, historical, cultural, social, and so on detail. Well, I, I found it enlightening myself. So I, I, hope, I hope that bodes well for others. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the present, uh, because uh, in particular, well, we, did, we did leave out Ukraine, which is an interesting case. Yeah, well, if you want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and w- what that situation was, at least in uh, two thousand nine, mm-hmm. uh, and if you want to add anything since then, that's okay too, I guess. Uh, if you have well, any insights, Oksana did a really great job. I mean, she was focused mostly on 2011 and the kind of end of the Soviet Union. And she really found that Ukraine had a had a trifurcated uh, politics of memory at that time, which of course has changed radically, but she largely found in the West a kind of um, nationalist narrative that was very strongly anti-Soviet. And then in the East, she found something that was much more nostalgic and in the center of the country, an attempt to kind of bridge the difference between the two. Kind of, well, a sec- in the East, you get a second, sim- very similar situation to Bulgaria, I would think. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But the differences in Bulgaria, that was far more widespread. Mm-hmm. And in, in Ukraine, she makes the argument that there are kind of three different ways of thinking about the past. And um, just as um, the book was going into press, of course, the Euromaidan began. Um, and we can see that uh, that those divisions have been changed radically by that event, obviously, that uh, there's been a, uh, a stronger... Um, 
unity between the center and the west of the country, and with the east being uh, something of an outlier, and uh, of course with the involvement of external actors that became even more polarized. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Uh, and as to other recent, and that continues to go on where we're going, although things have calmed down, and we, you know we do have mnemonic actors, I think, playing a a, a broader role in society right now, particularly with the uh, the uh, decommunization laws that were passed, and where that's going to lead, although it's already caused some tension with street naming and such. Well, well there is one more thing that is very interesting when when. It's particularly clear when you think about Ukraine is that something we didn't touch, it was the deliberate decision, which is the transnational dimension of memory politics. And and we just didn't want to complicate our uh, model and our thinking about this particular set of events. But what, what you see, obviously, that the, the memory war or memory conflict uh, in Ukraine is very much transnational because on the west, the western part it, it feeds into the possible conflict with Poland, right, over mm-hmm. the memory of uh, Volhynia and the, the conflict between Poles and Ukrainians there mm-hmm. over time during World War Two and earlier. And in the East, you know, for obvious reasons, that brings to the, the game uh, a way of remembering that is more kind of Russian than Ukrainian, uh, at least official Russian. Um, and that is something that um, it could be done within our model, but, you know, for the sake of simplicity, we didn't go there. Although some commentators already pointed out to us both that well, some people would perhaps would like to see it from the beginning already in the book, but some people suggested that this is exactly the kind of a next next step, maybe the next book. But um, our our framework is absolutely capable of absorbing that. Just the the game would, if I can call it that way, would become, of course, much more complicated. Right, and it was not as pronounced in when we were thinking about the events of 2009 and 2011, obviously. Mm-hmm. What they, as we talk about the present, uh, was one of the questions you raised at the end about the fractured memory regimes is the propensity or the danger they might pose to the uh, to towards dictatorship or something. Uh, and where do we stand with uh, Orban, and what does it mean in, with the, the the PIS victory in Poland? Is well, um, go ahead. Obviously, in Hungary, the the memory war that was erupt that erupted over the commemoration of two thousand and nine uh, was really catapulted Viktor Orban to power. And he has kind of aggressively pursued a uh, a completing the revolution kind of agenda, right? He uh, he stigmatizes um, he stigmatizes his opponents because his major opponent, of course, was a post-communist successor party, the Hungarian Socialist Party. Um, and in that sense, he's now moved to in some ways to stack the political system to give his party uh, <clears throat> a kind of uh, permanent advantage in elections. As well, the kind of culture in Hungary still remains um, strongly divided with, uh, with Orban on the one hand, but facing a more an even more radical challenge on his right with uh, with Jobbik that even looks, um, shall we say, uh, more aggressively towards the past um, and and entertains rehabilitation of some of the uh, Arrow Cross and strongly uh, extreme nationalist um, elements of interwar Hungary 
uh, and Orban has been forced in, on some level to kind of adopt some of that rhetoric, while at the same time painting his opponents as these um, these these villainous uh, national traitors who uh, who tried to continue to keep uh, the communist uh, power structure in place after the revolution of 1989, and uh, and. Now he, you know, argues that they have uh, triumphed over that and set things right. Well, but there's one more thing. We, we haven't mentioned that, and I, it's a good moment to, to go back to that for a moment. So among the concepts that are important for our theory is the concept of layering, which basically means that the one memory regime and its sort of cultural content may influence the way that another memory regime works. So in people's memory of X may be influenced by the memory of Y, right? Mm -hmm. So in uh, the case of Hungary, uh, as everybody would expect, the absolutely dominant um, memory regime is the memory of 1956 and the Soviet invasion. And it played a tremendous role in the way the, the preparations toward 2009 progressed because in 2006 you had 50th anniversary. So this kind of mnemonic temperature or the temperature of mnemonic conflict was, or, or, or at least remembering, right, was, was going up and in kind of explodes in the sense that it imposes very powerful interpretive frames on the memory of 89 and those frames come from this big huge tradition of remembering the, the catastrophe of the Soviet invasion in 1956 so you know by contrast how, how heated it is we, we, once we realized that we looked into the Czechs and Slovak cases are there any traces of layering uh, that in that case would be the Soviet invasion of 68 uh, and in none of it almost, very little, right? We couldn't find anything significant. So the very interesting contrast. But now, given the fact that 56 is this very powerful paradigmatic memory for Hungarians, and actually a set of memory regimes, right? But, but in, in, if you look at uh, sort of... Uh, I should I say uh, friendship or or certain signals of sympathy that come from Orban towards Putin? It is absolutely mind-boggling, right? It it really goes against sort of <laughs> I guess um, uh, an expectation of of our model, but uh, that's how it happens in politics. But he goes, he produces very uh, complicated interpretive sort of situations for himself. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes, and, anything, and, if anything, he now tries to cast the EU as the new evil empire, yes. mm -hmm. which is really astounding. So, you know, what, what then in our, you know, I guess frame, it would be another case of layering that the in this case, the, the memory is uh, of anything, 56 and 89, you know, anything of importance is now recast by changing the the signs of of symbolic enemies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now they are in the west rather than in the east. So the problem is uh, secular, demanding, rule imposing west, rather than Putin even in the east, who belongs more to this kind of uh, I don't know how to call it, uh, illiberal and traditional. Yes, it, yeah, the liberal tradition of the East or, or some, you know, whatever, something like that. Uh, but it really? is, then, then you have to reinterpret everything um, and they, they, they need to, well, the choice is then you shut up and you cannot talk as much about 56 as you used to. Mm -hmm. And uh, while this re reorientation happened, they, they stopped talking about 56. Certainly they talk about it much less than before. Hmm. Well, we right, it was very useful. It was very useful to coming to power, but it was not as useful yeah. once they had taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in power, we see really powerfully in Ukraine and the Baltic countries. Mm -hmm. In some sense. 
we are not getting good contact with you at this point. Uh, I think now Michael is. And what I want to do is close out then and ask you, what what do you put, you know, this is a, this is a wonderful project, and I, I like the insights you've just given on what's going on in Hungary right now, but uh, what projects do you see in the future? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we are both in other projects. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. What project are you working on, Jan? Well, I am finally finishing the large study Michael is very familiar with uh, on uh, the role of protest politics and civil society in democratic consolidation, Poland, Hungary, South Korea, and Taiwan. Um, and it is, a, a, you know, it is really Monty Python because it is now for something completely different. <laughs> uh, but eventually, uh, we both, uh, uh, Michael and I, talk about that maybe one day we will get back to this, to this uh, set of issues uh, about memory and the politics of memory. And Michael, what are you, where do you, what's on your plate now? Uh, I'm working with uh, Jeff Kopstein at California Irvine on a on a new book on um, the long term effects of leftist violence on uh, post communist regime change, and really what we're looking at there is distal effects of violence, the long term effects of violence, not the short term effects of violence. And we're thinking um, in lines of uh, a very important American social scientist by the name of Barrington Moore, who talked about how previous violence can sometimes pave the way to gradualism and change in subsequent historical periods. So we're really examining the impact that communism and the use of violence on communism had on social transformation, state building, and nation building, and what kinds of differential effects this had on regime outcomes post-1989. I think one of the things that Jan and I have talked about and returning to would be um, something having to do with um, a transnational European culture of memory, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that interests me, uh, and I think Jan as well, is what the the question of the impact of World War II and where countries lined up during World War II and the degree of collaboration that existed in World War II had on the way that countries think about the effects of Nazism and Stalinism and how that plays into their contemporary uh, cultural politics. Well, those are a lot of projects. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you about this one, and we look forward to talking to you again then when some of those projects are uh, at a different state of production. So I, we've been speaking with Jan Kubik and Michael Bernard about their book, 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration, published by Oxford. And we look forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you so much. You have been listening to New Books in East European Studies, a discussion with authors Michael Bernard and Jan Kubik about, uh, about their book, 20 Years After Communism, The Politics and Memory of Commemoration, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, saying goodbye until our next conversation. Bye-bye.